Welcome. I am Emily Botine. And I'm Katie And we're so glad to welcome you to Bitching Pitching Third Coast Annual Session that puts a microscope on the mysterious concept of how do you actually get a pitch accepted. We're going to turn on the mic. Uh, This session has been around for many years. It's supported by AIR. Chart is in the audience. Put your hands together for AIR, everybody. (laughs) And we want to say a big thank you to AIR's executive director, Sue Shard, for her support while we were putting this panel together. Also, Karen Lally, thank you so, so much for everything. Uh, You've been extremely helpful, so thank you. And also, we want to give a shout-out to our New Voices scholars. Uh, We actually have one pitching today, which is very exciting. So we're so glad that you guys are here. Thank you. So as you know, we have three brave pitchers who are going to be sharing their ideas live before three brave editors. Yes, and our brave editors today are Deborah George, senior editor, senior radio editor at Reveal. Let's give her hands together for Deborah. We've got Jamie York, who is the senior producer of Radio Lab and our neighbor at WNYC. Warm welcome to Jamie. And we've also got Anna Sussman. She is the managing editor of Snap Judgment. We are so glad to have her here today. And we're going to tell you a little bit more about them later on. Um, and before we begin and actually hear what is a very unrealistic situation, we don't normally have people pitching you at your offices, I assume, in person. We're going to hear a little bit about how you do deal with pitches and how, how they come to you. Yeah, so we wanted to just ask first, Jamie, um, like over the course of maybe 10 Radio Lab episodes, how many of those might come from outside pitches? Like how common is that? I'd say in terms, like truly outside over the transom, I'd say probably two of the 10. Um, the good news is that's increasing, and we're trying to make it more and more public and more and more accessible for people, so they understand how to do it if they want to do it. Yeah. And Deb, you reveal has its a whole set of reporters, but do you also yes. take yes, we do. outside? Yeah, we do. We have two ways of doing it. We have um, we collaborate with institutions, newspapers, magazines, um, uh, radio stations, public radio stations, and independent producers. So we have those streams coming into us, and we're always trying to increase them because we're a weekly show. Um, an investigative story can take you know months to develop, and so we have to get as many stories you know started and in the pipeline as possible. And and I would imagine it's, since you guys have so many stories in an episode of Snap Judgment, like mm-hmm. what how how is it for you all? How many pitches do you generally take from the outside? I would say it's probably similar to what Jamie said. Probably two out of ten, maybe a little less, of our stories come from outside producers. And how long does the process generally take for each show, like from pitch to maybe actually being on the air on the podcast? So probably the shortest it could take is about two months, and we just finished one that um, from a freelancer that took about a year and a half. And Jamie, what's the longest? We put out an episode that was probably four years in the making in the last year. So have hope. You know, things, take, things may take a while. Um, okay, so we're going to start the main event. And here's what's going to happen. Each pitcher has up to eight minutes to deliver their pitch to their individual editor. We'll give them a two-minute warning at six minutes. Uh, after that, the pitcher and the editor will talk about uh, what was presented. Uh, other judges, feel free to chime in if you have a question about the pitch or if there's a reason it might work for your show. Um, we'll probably be able to take one or two questions from the audience after 
Uh, we hear that there back and forth, and then we'll go through the, as follows. Um, so obviously, this is a pretty high-stakes event, uh, everyone having to give feedback in person. And of course, our pitchers are really the ones who are feeling the nerves most, so we want you all to give them a warm welcome. Come on down. Katie, who is first? All right. So let me get rid of the blocky music. And first up is Colleen Leahy. She is an independent. Yep, you can take your seat right there. She is an independent radio producer based in Washington, D.C. She has worked at NPR's Weekend Edition and at WBUR uh, at Here and Now. And she also has worked at the startup policy news site Morning Consult. And she'll be pitching to Snap Judgments and Assessment today. Anna Sussman, as we heard, is the managing editor at uh, Snap. She has two master's degrees from Berkeley in journalism and human rights, and she found backpack journalist with her husband. Can you guys take it away? No, I don't think they can. Oh. Maybe move it closer. Uh, a little bit. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Okay. Um, okay, so I'm going to start. And Do I'm going to warn you, my pitch is like eight and a half minutes every single time, so it's fine. Um, so I want everyone to imagine that you only have 15 minutes every single day to speak. What are you going to say? You only have 15 minutes. Um, for three months in 2012, Georgia Weber only spoke for 15 minutes a day. Sometimes less, sometimes not at all. Um, she'd been experiencing this really, really severe pain, um, in her throat that was so bad that it would like radiate out to her head and shoulders. The only thing she knew and understood about the pain was that it got worse when she talked. Um, And so after months of experiencing this pain and it getting worse and worse, she finally saw a doctor. Um, Like, well, there's nothing physically wrong with you. You're a vocal abuser. (laughs) And that's actually a real thing. And it's vocal abuses caused by like using the muscles we used to speak incorrectly over years. And he basically said, um, rest up, drink a lot of fluids, talk less, see you in six months. And Georgia was really uh, deeply sad um, because she'd already tried talking less and that's like, that's not something you can do. Um, I've never tried because I never shut up, but it's like, it's like trying to breathe, breathe less. Like it's so essential to our being, like you can't. And on top of that, George is a waitress. That's her day job. She's a cartoonist. And like, you can't not talk when you're a waitress. And so, um, she knew what she had to do. Um, she knew that she had to stop speaking when she started feeling pain. And for her, that was 15 minutes. And so she mourned. She told me she had, she like had three days in her house where she was like mourning the loss of her voice. But then she was pretty pragmatic about it. She wrote a list of like what she was going to have to do. And it said, quit job, try to get on disability, warn my friends. Um, and she did all of those things. She said, warn my friends, like let them know. Yeah. And um, she did all of those things eventually. And like her life obviously changed drastically. Um, but she also 
managed. Like she, she's a very social person and she continued to be a very social person. She found new ways of communicating. Um, she did all of, a lot of writing. She did, did a lot of like just mouthing and like having people read her lips basically. Um, she had a whiteboard for a while, which she ended up hating and getting rid of. She had like cue cards with like different phrases written on them. And um, eventually she, she got to a point where she got so sick of like explaining to people what was going on with her that she came up with a code that she like posted on Facebook that was, if I'm wearing lipstick, it means I'm not speaking at all today. Um, I'm only like mouthing and writing. And if I'm not wearing lipstick, you can expect me to maybe respond when you talk to me. Um, and so, like, given, like, how extreme her situation was and how dire it was, she was managing and doing pretty well, but it was also obviously, like, really, really dark, um, and difficult, and in particular, the experience of being misunderstood every single day. Every single day she encountered somebody who misunderstood her, made her feel extremely alone and alienated, alienated, and that's the tape I'm going to play as her talking about, um, what it feels like to move through the world when you literally don't have a voice. Everyone else is really loud. Really loud. Everyone is like turned up to 10 while I'm down to zero. And then when you walk into a space like a restaurant where like everyone's talking, it's you're walking into just like a wall of sounds. A wall of reverberating sounds. Like if you're a quiet person in a room full of people talking, like it's like there's, there's just like a bubble of muteness around you that like stands out in the contrast of all of that sound coming from every direction. Like when I'm at a party and I'm talking, sometimes sounds are coming from outside of me and sometimes they're coming from inside of me. And then if the sounds inside are just gone, it's like this level of, yeah, this level of existence is just, it just disappears. If we can't communicate except in very particular circumstances where we're both able to see one another and closely enough that we can catch the nuances of facial expression, then like, at what point does someone sort of stop registering that I exist if they can't hear me when they're not looking at me? If, if, like, if I'm sitting still so that I'm not making other noises, I could basically just be in a space without anyone acknowledging my existence at all. Um, like, I'm almost an invisible person. So, obviously, Georgia um, experienced a lot of miscommunication um, and being misunderstood. And she told me once um, she went to a party, and it was one of the days when she was only, like, mouthing and writing. And uh, she met this woman who assumed she was deaf and spoke to her in sign language. And uh, Georgia wrote... Oh, I'm not deaf. I don't understand sign language, but that's really cool. Like, where'd you learn it? <laughs> and the woman signed back to her. <laughs> and, and Georgia again was like, I'm not deaf. And, and the woman, like, continued signing her and then just kind of, like, perched next to her and became her, like, de facto translator. And she would translate everything that people said to Georgia, like, into sign language, which Georgia doesn't understand. So, like, th there are a lot of, like, very strange situations like that where she encountered... Um, and all, like all of the while, where she while she was going through this, um, simultaneously she was also satisfied with her creative work for the first time in her life. Um, for a long time, she'd been a cartoonist who wasn't cartooning, and um, and and she took this experience and turned it into a series that she called Dumb. That's obviously about her like having lost her voice, and she was very prolific. She was working every single day. She was really happy with the work. Um, 
And after about a year, she was able to speak for about two to three hours a day without pain. And that's kind of where her improvement plateaued. It's been four years now, and that's still where she's at. Um, and, and about a year ago, she started having really severe pain in her hands um, to the extent where, like, at its worst, like, she couldn't pick up a kitchen utensil to eat, and so, obviously, she wasn't drawing. So, like, for the past year, she's, like, only recently started drawing again, and so, like, the, the way I think about this story on a broader level is, like, okay, so there's somebody who loses something really, really essential, right? Their voice. And then she gains something that's also essential, which is, like, finding herself creatively, and then, lo and behold, she loses that, like, through this other very strange, like, fairly inexplicable um, physical injury. So, yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the story. Okay. Nice job. Thanks. Yeah. Um, sounds super powerful. Um, and it was a really good pitch. So that would definitely make it past our first round, which is... Um, which is just the email pitch. And what happens then is we bring it to our pitch meeting um, where people argue for and against. And if you are in the area, you're welcome to come to our pitch meetings. Um, even if you don't have a pitch, just email us and say you'd like to come and sit in on a pitch meeting, and we're happy to have you. And if you do have a pitch, um, that, and, and, and we've made it to the pitch meeting process, you're welcome to come to that meeting as well. Um, so I have some questions for you. Um, uh, it's got a great, it's got a great twist, you know. This this chapter three, that then she loses her hands. I mean, by great, I mean horrible and great, right? Yeah. Uh, um, what's the status of that now? So she, like, she can draw more now, but I think she's kind of like has realized that, like, obviously her creativity is something that is like almost viscerally painful and difficult for her. So I think she's trying to like her hands are like less painful now it's been about a year and so she's kind of recovering from that but um and today does does the pain in her hands impact her ability to communicate non-verbally um like is in the the writing or actually ask her that but i would like imagine with the writing i didn't even think to ask her that yeah i'm sure i'm sure it did yeah um yeah but but i think what she's realized is like i need to spend more time like, I'm somebody who has to spend a lot of time paying attention to my body because it rebels against me. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So, so one of the challenges at Snap Judgment is that we don't do profiles. Right. Um, and medical stories can be really enticing because they're often automatically powerful. Mm-hmm. They draw you in. They're emotional. They have strong talkers. Um, and so our challenge is to find a plot-based, event-based story within what would otherwise be a medical profile. Um, we did a story a few years ago about a woman who had something called foreign accent syndrome, where she had an accident of some kind or an illness, and it left her with a, speaking with a foreign accent. And she felt like she wasn't herself, and she was treated differently and all of these things. And we knew we wanted to do a story. Our producer, Julia DeWitt, knew she wanted to do a story about this woman, but all we knew was that she was a woman with an interesting syndrome. So how do you make that into a story? Um, Is it you find, for us, for Snap Judgment, you find events... So so every story is a personal growth story, right? If it falls into this Mm -hmm. kind of, like, profile category. Somebody 
evolves, and that's their arc, usually. Um, she, your woman has the benefit of evolving and then kind of devolving in a way. So, yeah. um, But you have, you have to find events around that arc. Otherwise, it's just somebody talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole story takes place in their head, where we want scenes, we want to transport someone to a place, right? We want to be transportive, so that means that talking to the woman and finding like events that she can paint as scenes that you and her together can paint as scenes so that they can kind of punctuate the story. Do you feel like any come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, the example I gave of the deaf woman, like, there are a lot of instances like that of, like, miscommunication over and over again. But I think, oh, I mean, honestly, there's a lot more, I think, reporting to be done because, to me, like, the the events that, like, stand out in the arc are, like, getting on welfare for her was like she's in Canada and she was in Quebec at the time and that's it's like notoriously difficult and it was it took her months and like that's that's a thing and like but most of the other events are like that like there was a time at a party when um a like guy she'd kind of sort of been into said he liked her better silent like and she was like, oh, oh, I'm never That's talking to you to ever again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so, like, and there's another time where, like, she was mouthing and, like, uh, the man she was speaking with, like, invented everything she was saying. And even when she was like, no, 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 no. He was like, you know, she, he was like, are you, are you doing this job now? And she was like, no, I'm doing this job now, like, mouthing it. And he responded, oh, that guy's, like, a real joker. Yeah. And, like, when she was like, no, no, no. He's, so I think they're, like, is a wealth of examples of miscommunication, but obviously that doesn't make a plot. And that, like, based on like what I know, that like, I think that like the only place where I think there might be a co- potential conflict is like how other people reacted to like her decisions, mm-hmm. and like in particular, she so she saw a speech language pathologist who basically that's like retraining your vocal muscles to prevent long term damage. And after a few months, she stopped seeing this person because it was too stressful for her. And I just, like, I didn't ask her because I wasn't, like, thinking long-term story when I was interviewing her. But I'm sure there were people in her life who did not approve of that decision and maybe who don't. I don't know. I mean, but I, I know exactly what you're saying. And, and Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's a totally surmountable problem. It usually just takes, like kind of chatting informally with right. your person over a couple of months mm-hmm. until you can draw out those events. And, and they're the events where kind of decision point events or events that like illustrate the arc that we're trying to make here, right? Yeah. Which is, like you said, you tell me your act one, act two, act three again. It was... It's like gaining something... Uh, right. Or losing, losing something, gaining something, losing something. Losing the thing that you just gained. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so another concern I think it would have come up in the room is that it ends in a pretty dark place. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, which is not a deal killer, but it's, you know, I, I would ask you, how do we think about, like, a way so it's not just a super bummer at the end? Right. Um, a way that is maybe more meaningful or surprisingly meaningful um, that she loses this one thing? Yeah, I don't know if there's something that's surprisingly meaningful, but I will say that, um, like, she she now is kind of, like, focusing on, um, like, she's pivoted towards, like I said, like, focusing on healing herself, but also healing other people. She's got involved in, like, alternative 
therapy and like does I think it's called craniosacral mm-hmm. or sacral therapy. She does mm-hmm. that, and that's part of it too. And she, um, I don't know, like she's not. She, I don't think she herself is in a dark place. I think she's found a way to cope with it. But I don't know, like, because this is definitely a piece that ends on like reflection, right. and I don't just know tricky. like what that reflection is right now. Like, yeah. I need to talk to her. Yeah, oh, and again, yeah. with ending on reflection, I mean, this is a trick that probably everybody does, you know, but that we kind of mask that in ending on a scene that shows that reflection. Right. Um, yeah. Which, again, you'd find with her. Oh, do you guys have any questions? Or is there one single question from the audience? <laughs> sure. What do you mean by ending on a theme that shows reflecting? I mean, ending on a scene that shows reflecting, like she's sitting by the window and <laughs> that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, I mean, hopefully in a way that doesn't, you know, it's not just like there's just no room for Joe and his ducks, you know, in a way that is... Uh, is is more unique. Um, we did a story on a man who was married to a woman who had multiple personalities. Um, and so he had a different relationship with each one of those personalities. And in the end of the story, she died, and that was our ending. And we're like, that's a bummer ending. Um, and like, how do we... And, and, and the story that we kind of built was that the loss for him was not just the loss of, of one wife. It was a loss of like... 30 different relationships um, and he had built a memorial in his backyard to all of the different personalities so we went there with him you know and ended instead of just him talking about that those multiple losses you know we kind of he listed all the different graves and the ways he had decorated them and things like that so just ending in a place yeah. great we are going to move on to our second let's give a big thank you so much Up next, we have Adrian. Yep, head on up there. Adrian is a journalist in New York, a former law clerk. Since making the switch from law to journalism, he has reported on the cost of football helmets due to concussions, drone racing, and New York's helicopter tour industry. And long ago, he worked in a ramen shop in Washington, D.C. And Adrian is pitching to Jamie York. Jamie is the senior producer of Radio Lab. He oversees the staff and the short and long-term editorial planning of the show. He got to start at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland and has reported and produced for other shows like On the Media, Studio 360, Marketplace, The World, NPR, and the BBC. So a big warm welcome to both of them. Okay, Adrian, I'm going to start a timer. Okay. Um, can everybody hear me Okay. Great. Um, so I'm just going to take advantage of the fact that there is a live audience here. And uh, can everybody help me out and raise your hand if you know that the drinking age in the United States is 21? Okay, keep your hand up if you started drinking before you turned 21. Okay, cone of silence, by the way. Nothing <laughs> leaves this room. Uh, see, I started drinking when I was 16, and this got me thinking about why is there this law that applies to everyone which most everyone breaks. And it turns out the story of how the drinking age became 21 is really interesting. It involves a personal tragedy that spiraled into a national movement. Uh, It involves a scientist who was really influential in alcohol studies, and he supported raising the age and then later came to regret it. Uh, It's about this law that affects all of us, and it's meant to save lives, but it may actually be costing lives. And so this story starts in the 80s. At the time, most states had a drinking age of 18 or 19, uh, and drunk driving was actually a huge problem at that time. About 26,000 people a year died. That's one person dying every 20 minutes. 
So if you were in high school at the time, you probably got an educational video shown to you like this. I had the grim task this morning of cleaning out Sandy's locker. And putting everything into a small box. I guess by now you all know the reason why. Sandy's chair will never be filled again. Statistics are not just numbers. And I guess now we all know that it's not always the other guy. So this may seem a little quaint, but at the time, drunk driving was actually surprisingly socially accepted. And then came a 13-year-old girl named Carrie Leitner. She was on her way to a church carnival when she was run over by a drunk driver. And Carrie's mom, Candace, she didn't find out till hours later. She came home expecting to see her daughter there, and instead she saw her dad. My dad said, honey, I don't know how to tell you this, but um, we lost Carrie. And I said, well, just call the neighbors. And my ex-husband stopped, and he said, no, no, you don't understand. She's dead. She was killed. She was run over. Carrie went on to... I don't, I don't think there is any pain worse than that of losing a child. It, it's not just an emotional pain, it's an actual physical pain. Candy went on to found it MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They lobbied state and local governments, and really quickly this spiraled into a national movement. Uh, there were chapters springing up around the country, she had a movie made about her, and she even got the president's ear. And she said to President Reagan, you got to do something about drunk driving. And what he did was convene a commission of experts, advocates, people who work in the alcohol industry, and scientists. One of the scientists was this guy named Morris Chaffetz. And to understand his role in how the drinking age became 21, uh, we have to understand a little bit about Morris himself. And his story is really interesting. He was a psychiatrist, got started in the 50s, and basically... What Kinsey did for sex, he did for booze. Uh, and so he got into the field of studying alcohol abuse, but it wasn't really by choice. He finished training as a psychiatrist at Harvard, and basically it was the, the only job he could get when he finished was as a psychiatrist at an alcohol clinic. He was like, oh, my God, no self-respecting doctor would work there, let alone Jewish doctors. <laughs> like, you got to be kidding. That, by the way, is uh, Morris Chaffetz's son. He spoke to me because his dad actually died a few years ago. Why, why does that make it, I guess, worse? Well, because what alcoholism was thought of as in, in the 50s was the guy in the gutter, the hobo, the bums. You know, that's what alcoholism, alcoholics were. And when he got in there, he figured he'd do it for a few months and try to get transferred to someplace else. But Morris stayed there a few months got to know the patients, and he realized. Anybody can be an alcoholic, and he brought that all out, and that's all of a sudden he realized there was a lot more here and a bigger opportunity that people needed treatment for. Morris went on to change perceptions about alcoholism, but he was also kind of controversial. Uh, one time he made headlines by recommending that children learn to drink in school. Uh, Chaffetz's son says he was allowed to drink whenever he wanted, and he even showed me a picture of him at his uh, 13th birthday party. Yes, I do look like a complete dork, but you also see what's in my hand, which is a glass of wine. Probably he'd be, you know, ostracized for doing that today. So back to 1983, Presidential Commission on Drunk Driving. Morse is ahead of the part of this commission that votes to raise, that votes to recommend raising the drinking age. 
And fast forward to three decades later, drunk driving deaths have been cut in half. So it seems like this law has been a big success. But here's where it gets interesting for me. I found this op-ed from Chaffetz, which he wrote in 2009, about three decades later, where he says raising the drinking age was a mistake. I reluctantly voted yes. It is the single most regrettable decision of my entire professional career. Legal age 21 has not worked. Chaffetz says drunk driving deaths may be down, but it's not because of the drinking age. We have safer cars, safer highways, we have better emergency medicine, and he says what the drinking age has done is actually created a culture of alcohol abuse among youth. Adrian, two more minutes. His son sums it up this way. I think it's related to the drinking age. I think the drinking age has forced people to drink abusively. And I know people get upset with me for saying that, but you know, it gets back to what my dad said. What do you have that you strive for? If you don't have it, you strive for it. I, I think that probably existed before and after. I don't think that made one bit of difference. I don't. That's Kerry Leitner again. Is there any part of you that thinks there might be some validity to the argument that there have been unintended consequences? No. Absolutely not. I see nothing but good coming from this measure. Nothing but good. But a significant number of experts actually disagree. If you look at some studies, like the Surgeon General's report, says that alcohol dependence disorder is the highest among 18 to 20-year-olds. Another study says that more than 1,000 people under 21 die from alcohol poisoning every year. Binge drinking is still a huge issue on college campuses. And so this story is about a law that affects all of us, a law that was meant to save lives, which may actually be costing lives. And I think this story is perfect for Radiolab because it gets into a gray area. We're not sure who's the good guy here, and there's a force that we don't see which may be affecting our behavior in big ways. And so that's the story in a nutshell. Thank you. First, thanks. That was great. I really like that you have tape. Um, and it's a brave thing you just did. Thanks for doing it. Um, we have editorial meetings every other week. We typically don't ask people to do this, so uh, I appreciate it all the more. Um, people typically write pitches, send it to us. There are three paragraphs or more, uh, and the group vets them, and then we discuss the ones that have been uploaded. Um, and if people are in the area and we've uploaded them, we'll have them come in and discuss further, uh, elaborate on what they've written. Um, how would you tell this? Would you make it as chronological as you did in the pitch? Uh, I think I would actually start off um, at a party. Uh, because I think it's an experience that rel is relatable to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I know that when I started drinking at 16, it was usually in somebody's basement, and we got somebody to uh, buy booze for us. And I think that experience hits home for a lot of people, you know, just, like, be in that scene for a moment. And then I think it's a way of drawing people in and say, like, this is a thing that a lot of people do. Um, and don't you ever wonder why we have this law that a lot of people just don't care about? Um, so that's how I probably started off. Um, and I think the part that I didn't really get into was the, um, the part where the commission votes to raise the drinking age. I think that's a, a moment that could be stretched out a little more, too, where um, I might reach out to other people who were 
on that panel and get them to articulate like, I thought this was a, you know, a terrible idea or I thought this was a great idea. Like it made perfect sense. And then um, I think um, that would be there somewhere. And then uh, at the end, I think we need to have a sense of like, so who's right? And the frustrating thing is there's, I think, statistics that both sides can use to support it. And I think the end would, I think, would be sort of like wading into this gray area. And maybe there's no definitive answer, but that's how I sort of imagine it. Um, can you flesh out for me how straight the line is between Morris's recommendation and the actual vote to raise the drinking age? So Morris was the head, so this part of this commission that's called the Alcohol, the Education and Prevention Commission. And they made a bunch of regulate, uh, recommendations, but he was the head of that. And so the way his son tells it was that everybody was for this. Um, and Morris was sort of like the one holdout. Um, and people just like berated him. And they were like, well, we need, if we're going to pass this, we need to be unanimous. And we need your vote because you're the Kinsey of Boots. Um, and he did it after, I guess, kind of uh, succumbing to the pressure. He was like, fine, let's do it. And um, that recommendation was made by the, that became the commission's official stance. And that's what the president and the Congress um, were able to sort of like gauge what's the expert view. And so shortly after that, a bill was introduced by MAD and that got passed really quickly in Congress. And um, that bill was basically, um, part of it was the, the political movement that was, was really driven by MAD, but another part of it was the justification was like, look at all of these experts. They say we should raise it, let's do it. And was the debate at the time how much to raise it? Was there a camp that argued for 20 and another camp that argued for 22 and? So there was, like the states at the time, some of them, most of them had 18 or 19 as their drinking age, a few had 20. And the rationale for raising it to 21, which was that some states had a 21 drinking age and we shouldn't have a patchwork of different states. And there was this thing at the time that they, they nicknamed blood borders, which was like kids from a, a 21 state would drive into an 18 state and they would get drunk and crash on the way back. So they're like, we need a law that's going to uniform, uniformly apply to all the states so we eliminate this problem. And that's why they aimed at 21. Hmm. And what is the central question, do you think, when you talked about uh, the fact that it does have this central tension? How would you explain that? I think the, cent the, the tension for me is, um, has this law worked in the way that it says it does? You know, does does this higher drinking age actually reduce drunk driving deaths, or is it all these other things? And is it causing harm in the way that its critics say it is? You know, on, I guess to even put it even simpler, like on balance, you know, is this law costing as many lives as it's saving? So, uh, what I like about the way you laid it out is that you've got these. Uh, two primary characters, um, and to hear Candace and have I got that right, Candace? Yeah. Um, and to hear Morris or Morris's son uh, explain their respective viewpoints is it's really satisfying. It feels sort of ground level, and it feels like there are real stakes. 
uh, it gets harder to tell a kind of societal, epidemiological, study-based story um, because the altitude is so high that you kind of you get lost in the data, I think. And I don't know that it would be a satisfying conclusion to have an argument about which set of studies bear out which, um, which point of view. Um, so I think I'd want to think about whether there's a way to embody those somehow, uh, get back down to the ground level, and feel a real connection to somebody who um, is being faced with the tension that you're describing. Yeah. I mean, that's what you want to do. You want to feel like um, there are real stakes to that argument. Well, so there, I've read uh, a few stories of, for instance, kids who are in college who died from alcohol poisoning. And the, their, their parents have spoken out and saying that, um, you know, one, one recent example was from a few years ago, a student at Rutgers, uh, I think it was a sorority, she got alcohol poisoning and her sorority mates didn't take her to the hospital because they were afraid of um, getting caught for underage drinking. And their parents expressed the view that, like, well, maybe, maybe there is some merit to this idea that the drinking age is is driving this sort of risky behavior. And so that might be a way to bring it down to the ground level. It's like, this is the tension, right? Like, it's, um, I, that might be a way of zeroing in on, I think, what you're, what you're talking about, like putting it in a human form. Yeah. And that's, I guess, what I, somebody I could reach out to. Does anyone have one question for Jamie or Adrian just about this story? Yeah. I guess this is a question about the pitch, but also maybe Jamie's reaction to this. So initially, I heard this as Morris um, thought one thing and then later came to change his mind and regret casting that vote because on the science, he actually had changed his mind. But then the more I listened to the pitch, I realized, wait a minute, that's not actually true. He never wanted to vote in favor of 21, he was pressured politically to do that. And that changes the story for me because if he had held out and he hadn't voted yes, but the rest of the panel had, if I'm understanding this correctly, and I guess my question is, am I understanding this correctly? So the recommendation would have been nine to one instead of 10 to zero, but it feels like the rest of the events still would have happened exactly as they happened. And so it takes away from me the value of him as a central character because it doesn't feel as if had he stuck to his guns and voted no on 21 that anything different would have happened. So, so that's my question. Do I understand it correctly and does that change anything about yeah. the strength of the pitch? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I just added, is his regret later when he writes that, uh, that op-ed that he didn't stick to his guns? <laughs> or that he voted his conscience and he turned out to be wrong? Uh, it's that he didn't stick to his guns, I think, more. Um, so he bowed to the pressure and he regrets that... Yeah. Got it. Because that it is a less dramatic... I mean, if you're going to follow a single character as they go through a series of changes and arrive somewhere, um, evolved in some way that is probably the person you want to focus on and it does take away somewhat from how abrupt that reversal is or what it actually means. Yeah. Well, I think the... the and especially the so because you can't hear him. Yeah. Right. You get it all secondhand from his son. Yeah. 
Um, I guess what I would say to that is that at the time he voted for it, his intuition, he had reservations about it, but he didn't know really what was going to happen. And what's interesting to me is now that we're 30 years later, we actually know what happened. And he can look back and say it hasn't worked, in his opinion. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you very you. much. We're going to go to our third and final pitcher, Sarika Mehta. You can join uh, Katie. She's just going to be checking the computer. Uh, Sarika is a Portland, Oregon-based radio producer. She is the host and producer of the independent podcast Intersections Radio, which airs locally on xray.fm. Uh, she's also spent time working at KBOO in Portland and is also a sign language interpreter. Um, and Sarika is going to be uh, pitching to Reveal's Deb George, who's on our end. As we said before, Deb is the senior radio editor for Reveal. She's also a contributing editor with NPR's Radio Diaries. Uh, from She wor has worked, I was just looking at Radio Diaries and All Things Considered. Deb has worked in the U.S., Asia, Africa, and Latin America. She's a two-time recipient of the Peabody Award and a six-time re recipient of the DuPont Award. And uh, if you haven't been edited by uh, Deb... You've missed something. Uh, my edits with Deb are some of my favorite moments in what radio work. Thanks so much to both of them. Warm welcome to both of them. Well, this is a story of deaf inmates and the injustices that they face. I wish to investigate wrongful conviction due to interpreter error. So to give you some background, the Americans with Disabilities Act requires accommodations for the purpose of equal access to everyone, and that includes inmates, and oftentimes this is not met. And to look at the prison system, 60 to 90 percent of inmates have disabilities. Now, it's a huge range. I'm, I'm not denying that. 60 to 90 percent. And the reason it's this very huge, under, un, not, you know, incomprehensible range is because there's actually no tracking data on this. There is a nonprofit volunteer organization that is tracking the data. It's called Helping Educate to Advance the Rights of the Deaf, or HERD as an acronym. But the numbers are murky. In the state of Louisiana, it's been reported that they have 2,000 deaf inmates, but then HERD went and investigated and found two. So there is just, that is one very strong piece of the story. Um, and the main person that I want to talk about is actually a criminal defense attorney named Amber Barely. She, as I said, is a criminal, a, a criminal justice attorney from Texas. She specializes in representing deaf clients because she herself is fluent in American Sign Language and in the culture of deaf people. She's also a certified interpreter for the court system, which is a whole separate category of interpretation. Now, I interviewed her about this issue of wrongful conviction due to interpreter error. Does this happen? Uh, why is it so hard to prove in these kind of issues? I have some tape to play. And then they come to me and they say, I didn't understand the interpreter, or I had an interpreter through the entire process, but I didn't understand them. Or they used my mother, or they used my, you know, my child to interpret for me. I hear these stories all the time, so I know it happens. And I know in the state of Texas, I can't speak for the rest of, uh, of the country, but most counties don't put, you know, a, a, an area for the place for the uh, interpreter to sign their name, so you don't ever even know who the interpreter was. So 
so there's nothing you can do. And you know if it happens once, it's happened before. And I hear these stories all the time. All the time. So again, this happens all the time. She's always receiving these clients kind of after they've been they've fallen through the cracks and they are saying, uh, well, I didn't have an interpreter. I didn't understand my interpreter, the whole process. And they just said yes to everything. They pled guilty. They said yes to everything because they didn't want to look insubordinate. Um, I have another related story. Amber has a client right now, and it's a pending case, so I can't actually talk too much about it. But this is a deaf Latino client who is um, in holding right now. There's a charge against him. And additionally, because of status, there is also an immigration component to this story. But basically, this person was taken out of school in the sixth grade, so his language is very unique and very, very idiosyncratic. It is not standard American Sign Language that he uses. So there are a number of other experts that have to be brought in for this case. There is a Spanish-English interpreter for his family. Um, there is a hearing interpreter, meaning someone who uses ASL to English. And there's what is called a certified deaf interpreter who specializes in working with people like this, whose language is not standard, who's you know, maybe relies more on a lot of visual cues, uh, people for, deaf people from other countries who use other signed languages. By the way, sign language is not universal, in case that wasn't known. Um, and there are different dialects across the United States, and your education uh, and literacy affects what your sign language might look like. Uh, not to mention English is like a really low priority at this point. So the big question is, does interpreter error happen in the justice system? And it absolutely happens. And as Amber said, it happens time and time again. And the reason that this happens is that an interpreter may not be qualified. Um, They may be a bad fit. Sometimes somebody has all of the accolades and all the accreditations and all of the experience, but they just may be a bad fit because of a client like this person I was just talking about. Um, And oftentimes a family member is used to interpret a trial or an interrogation. And unfortunately, most of the time, an interpreter is not even brought in, and as a result, the interrogating officer and the deaf person have to resort to pen and paper. American Sign Language and English have very, very different grammatical structures. So what that means is that there's a lot of opportunity for misunderstanding, mistranslation, things like that. And again, because somebody is not in a position of power here, this is underrepresented community, Oftentimes to save face and to look, you know, like they're behaving, they will just say yes to everything and just, you know, and not realizing what they're saying yes to, such as pleading guilty. This often happens right at the start, at the arrest. They are not aware of the Miranda rights or any rights, really, why they're being arrested. Um, A deaf person might even try to say, you know, hang on, I'm deaf, and then this looks like something else very menacing to uh, an officer. It's just a very tricky situation that a lot of people find themselves in. But the other big piece of this is that interpreters are not machines. Um, I myself am, as uh, Katie mentioned, as Emily mentioned, I'm a sign language interpreter. I'm certified as a generalist. I do not work in the court system, and I would not. We are not machines. <laughs> you know, we are humans, and human error happens. It just, it just does. So there should be, ideally, there would be safety checks and clarification checks and opportunities to look back at uh, an interpretation of a trial or of an arraignment and say, was everything, you know, was this accessible? But there's no video recording of anything. Two minutes, and as, Okay. And as Amber mentioned, 
there's no record of who the interpreter was in this circumstance, at least in counties across Texas. And another thing to keep in mind is there's no one-to-one translation for everything across English and American Sign Language. There's no one-to-one translation for the ever commonly used word weapon. So you can imagine how things might play out. Um, This is very hard to prove because there is such a lack of understanding in the justice system for the needs of deaf people. And at the end of all of this, the only people who know if if an error took place are the interpreter and the deaf person, and frankly, no one's going to say anything. Um, And again, there's no record of the interpreter. So the people I would want to interview for the story are Amber Farrelly, the attorney I was describing, another attorney named Talila Lewis, who is the founder of the organization Tracking the Data, called HERD, Um, interpreting experts in the legal system, both deaf and hearing, that deaf Latino client that I was referring to, uh, him and his family, if that's allowed since it's a pending case, there is an advocate called, uh, named Pat Bliss who worked with Felix Garcia, who is still incarcerated after 30 years, um, although he's, he's uh, trying to appeal his case. And Stephen Brody is uh, an exonerated person who was served 20 years due to um, wrongful conviction. And this is looking at a prison within a prison system, as Salila Lewis says. And that is the story. Well, it sounds like something Reveal would be interested in um, on, on several levels. Um, but I have questions, of course. Of course. Um, would you focus this story in Louisiana? Since are your main, would your main characters be in Louisiana? Actually, Texas uh, was the... I, oh, it was Texas? Louisiana was okay. one, just an example of a statistic that isn't working. And Texas is where I think I have um, more opportunities for contacts. Okay, the defense attorney is, is in... Is in Texas. Is right. in Texas, okay. Um, so... so this would be focused all on state courts, right? Not federal courts. Right. We'd be looking at state right. courts. Okay. Um, so a couple of times you said um, Amber says, and 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 it's very hard to prove. But we would need you to try and prove, prove that, that to the extent that it, it is possible. So I'd ask, like, what kind of investigative techniques you were planning to use? Um, you know, what would your methodology be? Um, I've been thinking a lot about that, and it would involve the interviews with the inmates and with the lawyers. Um, and that's just the trick, is that it's, it is so hard to prove. Um, right. everyone, I've even spoken to lawyers who, are, who don't specialize with uh, representing deaf people, but they've been involved in cases involving sign language interpreters, they all said, oh yeah, this happens, it's impossible to prove. Right. So this is the right. trick. Well, I'm trying to think of what kind of data you could collect mm-hmm. and, and analyze in order to see this. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at conviction rates in one state or in one county um, in Texas, and you know, how many, you know, how many conviction rates, are the deaf conviction rates proportional to, or out of proportion, to the to the conviction rates at large. Um, uh, let's see, what else could you get? Um, who pays for the special interpreters that you were talking about? The the the. the it's the, it's the court system is supposed to pay. Okay. Mm-hmm. It and depends. If it's a private meeting with the attorney, then um, the attorney 
would be responsible for that cost, but if it's with the trial, if it's anything involving the actual court, then the court is responsible. Right. So are most of the defendants, uh, do they have public defenders, or are they private, private attorneys? She next? is a private attorney, but I, you know, she, she, I, don't th I think it depends where in the process this happens. So if it's at the arraignment or at the hearing or at the trial mm -hmm. or... Mm -hmm. um, but that is a good question about the public defenders. Um, it, I think that's where it might be somebody set up with the court system, an officer of the court who, mm -hmm. you know, with, with the interpreters of the court, they're officers of the court, so they might show up. And that's also tricky because they don't know this, what's, what everyone's walking into. Right, right. So there's no, there's no one entity that you could point to as being responsible for the problem. Would it be a lack of funding? for interpreters? Um, the, because of the Americans with Disabilities Act, there has to be funding. It's just a question of will the judge allow it? Will the judge be mm -hmm. supportive of this? Mm -hmm. um, it's also, it, it's more an issue of who knows their rights to make this happen mm -hmm. um, and who is willing to fight for this. And when you're in this position of, you know, uh, uh, when you're arrested, you know, or how hard are you going to fight for something in and look like you're fighting in court. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think, so th these are pay services pay that are paid for because you know, of federal law, but it's more of knowing what the rights are. And, um, and I think training is another big part of it. Training of interpreters, that is. Right. And training right. of officers. And it's probably low on the priority list. Pretty low yeah. on the priority yeah. list. Yeah, okay. It sounds like you could get good characters and good stories, and, and that would go far. Um, if, if this were pitched to reveal, um, we would, we would, um, you know, after we look at your written pitch, mm -hmm. um, and we, there's a weeding through process, and then, um, cause Anna's husband just pitched, and then we bring a person in for, um, uh, a talk with us, okay. either by Skype or Google chat or whatever, um, or in person if they're there. And um, and then and then you answer questions from you know reporters and and editors, um, and so if we go pretty far along and we think this is really something that we want to invest in, then I would hook you up with our data editor to see because she often has ideas about okay. how you could go about you know finding enough data to support to support a th your thesis that this is happening disproportionately uh, to deaf people. Um, so, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Anna, do you wanna, that, did you want to say something about pitching to reveal, like, because you just did it. <laughs> um, Funnily, I didn't. There is another Anna Sussman, oh. <laughs> and she and I get confused all the time. She probably pitched you. I don't. I don't think I pitched you. No, not to my husband. Oh, my husband pitched you. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> there is an Anna Sussman who works the New York Times, and we get confused. People credit me with her work all the time. And I'm like, Thank you very much. <laughs> Does her husband pitch? Uh, <laughs> probably. I had a question for you, which was you asked the question about the responsible party, mm -hmm. and is that a deal killer for a real pitch? If there's like more of like a tragedy of the commons, or like there's an oversight which is causing great harm and pain to a great number of people, does there have to be a responsible party? Um, not, no. It's not a deal breaker. 
but it is something that we look at because if we're going to expose a problem that exists in, yep. in any area, in any walk of life, then there are, maybe not a person, but there are institutions that are responsible and where can you look and see, you know, you know, of course, of course, you know, the, the main investigative trope is you find a public official who, you know, when you question him and, you know, and he squirms or, you mm -hmm. know, and, you know. Here's hoping. Or not. But, uh, but no, but, but, but the whole idea is to look at how does this happen systemically, mm -hmm. not just in a single case. Mm -hmm. And what's the threshold for that data? It sounds like you were describing a sort of tentative commitment you'd make, and then you'd turn them over to a data editor. But how do you know if there's the data to support it unless you do that, take that step first? Um, well, she, she's really good at coming up with ideas about mm. how, you would, how you would work with data in order to find a particular, um, a particular problem and show, show the problem. Um, so so if, we were, if we were really wanting to, to work with you and work on this story, then, then yes, we would have her weigh in, give some advice, you know, and then evaluate from there. Um, uh, uh, before we talk about general, does, does anyone have a qu one question about this specific? Yeah. yeah Sorry, you're supposed to be. Uh, yeah, just kind of following up with what Jamie was asking, like, if you, if you don't have proof, but you just simply want to investigate something, to see if there is something messed up happening, can you pitch to reveal, or do you like how much research do you have to have you know done before? Do you need to show that there is something messed up happening already? Well, for for an independent producer or or somebody from a station, I think we would expect you to have some of the basic research done already, and be able to come up and and convince us that there's more to uncover. Um, but yes, I would be, you know, so in other words, not just a story idea, but, uh, you know, I've looked into this, and you obviously have looked into this, and, and this is what I found, you know. Does it ever happen where everyone's on board a reveal, and, and you look into it, and it turns out there's nothing? Yeah, 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 it does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the difference between an investigative story and a narrative story. It happens right. to us too. About the, pro you know, about the problem, you know, a, a yeah, narrative story or an explainer story about the problems. I mean, you could do a piece on the problems uh, of deaf people in court, and you could do it all with um, stories and anecdotes. But we need we need something more than that. Mm -hmm. Okay, Sarika and Deb, thank you so much for pitching. For general questions for our panelists and also pitchers too if you want questions uh, from them so we have help with this microphone back here so um, let's just start maybe right here on closer to the end hi um, this is something I struggle with as a freelancer and it's what everyone just kind of touched on how much work do you need to have done already before you have a financial commitment from anyone and as a freelancer, it's also hard because you're like, hey, I want to do this story. And they're like, who's it for? And you're like, oh. you know. So what, how much do you need to come to you guys 
it seems to be a much small, lower threshold for coming to like All Things Considered, for instance, because it's shorter stories. So I'm just want to know when, at what stage of development, I guess for your three programs and maybe others, if you can talk about it, do we come, at, like at which stage? That's my question. That's a great question. Yeah. Um, there is no easy answer. Um, the one thing I would say is that we frequently say to somebody, uh, we identified these holes maybe in your research or we had these questions that we'd like you to follow up on. Um, and we understand you're basically doing this on spec, but if you're willing to get back to us and put a little more work into this, we'll reconsider it. Uh, I think the sort of baseline for us is that the characters are accessible, that you've done the work of making sure that we can actually talk to the people that you've proposed as, as characters, um, that the story is true, certainly. Uh, and that the surprise, it, it, maybe in particular for us, but the surprise that you've identified, hopefully, um, is a genuine one. It hasn't been sort of ginned up for the sake of the pitch. That's a real common uh, effort that I think people make, and it's where stories most often fall flat. Can you give an example of that? Like She's asking for an example. Second. I'm sorry, I'm just repeating it into the microphone. Oh. Um, we get pitches all the time where it's not a central tension. We, we, in addition to a, you know, the sort of traditional arc that I think every narrative show wants, are often looking for moments of real surprise, um, where something truly surprising happens. Um, and because people know that in pitching us, um, that's often part of the, the pitch that we're kicking the tires on the most. Yeah. It's got to hold up. It's got to be real. Yeah. And I just wanted to add, too, that, um, that sometimes I get calls from people, and if I'm intrigued by the story, um, then I would work with you to develop the pitch. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'd say for me, on staff at SNAP, we have to pitch also uh, weekly. Um, and, and in my experience, a pitch is kind of like an interview where you know when you've nailed it and when you blew it. Um, and so uh, as a freelancer, as a pitch writer, like, I would just say keep working the pitch until you're like, ah, that's it. Like, they can't say no to this. Um, even though that's, that's a really annoying answer. But it's, kind of, it's, it's, a little bit intu- it's a little bit intuitive. Like, you know when your pitch is going to kill it and when it's a little bit full of holes. Yeah. Uh, this kind of built a bit on the previous question. Uh, but are there any common mistakes or, or things that you see in pitches that frustrate you that you wish you could just reach out and preemptively stop? Mm-hmm. Well, a badly written pitch, I just, <laughs> you know, if somebody's sloppy in their, their writing and, and, and hasn't really thought it through, I can tell that immediately and it turns me off immediately. I'd say we get confronted with people expecting that we can bring an element of surprise to something. We often get told about a topic, a trend, a study, a something, um, and there is implied in that, now go Radiolab it. Um, you guys go make it jazzy and exciting and musical and, and, um, and surprising. You introduce that thing to it, and that's not what we do. 
what we actually do is we're incredibly strict about which pitches we let in, and that's the radio lab treatment that I think people assume happens later in the process. We're very, very choosy, and that's how we wind up with the stories we wind up with. Our, our, our website has uh, like really elaborate instructions on pitches that work for us and pitches that don't. Um, and so before you pitch to us, you should go there. It's clear if you haven't. Um, there's a flow chart, and if you don't make it to the end of the flow chart, it's not, it's not going to get very far. Um, so please start there. It's just go to snapjudgment.org, and it's click on tell your story or snapjudgment.org slash pitches. Thank you. You say you're choosy. I know every newsroom is. And I'm just curious, each one of you, what is your percentage of taking outside pitches versus stories that you enterprise yourself from within? <laughs> Ours are pro- probably like a little less than 5% are outside. Ours are, like I said, they're going up. I'd say it's more like 10. We've got sort of three tiers. We've got people who are pitching from within. Um, and we've got a group of people who we have prior relationships with who we frequently send pitch solicitation emails to and um, know that we can turn to in a more informal way. Um, and then we've got everybody else who are more or less pitching cold. Um, and we have, we, we, we don't have enough, even though we have staff reporters um, and producers, we don't have enough. And so we actively seek out uh, collaborations. Um, and so if you're a station-based reporter, <laughs> then um, you know, if your station is willing to, to give you the time to exclusively work with us, like for a month or a month and a half, then, um, you know, then that, would, that would go a long ways. Um, if you're an independent, we might try to hook you up with um, with a foundation that gives money for investigative reporting, and you know, and and, and so it's like a three-way collaboration. Um, so yeah, so the rarest are you know truly independent producers who have no outside funding, because you know it, this can be um, it can be a long, long process. How often do you find yourself saying, we like your pitch and we would like to do it? How often? Yeah, like, not, we want to do it, not you. Oh. Uh, <laughs> gee, I don't think we've done that. Huh. It's unethical to do that, isn't it? You can't just steal someone's story. Well, you we could pay them for it. Oh, pay them a guilty. Yeah. Or pay them a finder's fee. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. We do some version of that quite often. Um, <laughs> our production process is so idiosyncratic and intense um, and undescribable that, uh, <laughs> that we will frequently take an initial step with somebody where we'll have them participate in the interviews and uh, help guide uh-huh. the reporting and t- uh, help us plan the arc, what we call storyboarding. Um, but very often when we get to the end of that and we've decided that we want to green light the pitch and fully pursue it, um, we take that middle portion uh, to do it ourselves. And we make sure they're comfortable with that and we're paying them we will always pair a freelancer with an on-staff reporter. Um, so you'll always be working with a producer. Um, and I wanted to be clear, when I said we only take 5% um, of our stories from, from outside producers, we would like that number to be much higher. 
Um, it's not to discourage you. It's to encourage you. We need a lot more uh, freelance pitches. So please send them our way, and we'll do everything we can to make it work. I think we have time for one or two more questions real quick. Coming at me with microphones. Hi, um, I am a station-based reporter, and one of the things I've struggled about with pitching uh, to both NPR and also podcasts and shows outside of NPR is the level of specificity with one particular person who's taking the pitch. Um, so I used to be in the Southern Bureau. Our bureau chief has like a very specific, like a template for pitches. Like the first paragraph should say this, second paragraph should say this, and so on and so forth. Do you find yourselves having that level of specificity? Do you think it's useful? Is there a template that you would recommend? Uh, well, we have um, we have a pitch page that's on the Reveal website that you can look it up, and it's uh, you know it goes from you know describe briefly or summarize the um, the questions that you're asking in this story, and then it gets into more more granular detail about the story itself and who who your characters would be and what the investigative findings might be and how far are you along. Um, on your story, what, what what assets do you have in hand, and what do you need to get, and you know, so so yes, but but um, it's not just one editor who's deciding on it. The first first we have uh, all the pitches are looked at by the entire staff, and I hate to say this, but they're rated. <laughs> you know, there's a sort of numerical rating. And we, and we pick from that to, you know, what we want to know deeper, what we want to know more about. And, you know, and then it's usually um, either writing you back and asking you to, to explain more or, um, or bringing you in and, and saying, you know, could you tell us this? Could you find out this? Yeah, we have pitch guidelines. They're you know, ingredients. There's no right way to do that recipe. Um, but we also have big, fractious editorial meetings yeah. uh, because we're famous, infamous for being digressive, finding some little aspect of the story that maybe you didn't foreground, but we particularly latch on to. Um, so we'd like to have as many people as possible looking at it and seeing if we can draw something from it. But I understand the, what you mean by the problem that there's, there's one editor who likes stories done a particular way and that person's the gatekeeper. Yeah, yeah. I've, had turn, I've had editors turn down pitches if you don't follow that exact template. So mm -hmm. I guess what I'm wondering is like, if it's if the style is not there but the substance is there, how much are you willing to look past? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot. Hi. Yeah. 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 Hi. We have one more um, question. Hiya. I'm from England and I have uh, spent years pitching to the BBC, and uh, the programs of the BBC are very different to the, the types of content that you guys make. And it's really interesting listening to the process because it's very different as well. And that's obviously what informs, um, you know, the different kind of programming that, that they make in the UK. And I suppose there's a, there is a gatekeeper. There's one commissioner usually for BBC content. Um, uh, but, but what it does is I wonder whether you have... You talked about things like, does your program have the story arc? Does it have a kind of upbeat ending that we're used to? Is there a, perhaps a problem that you are suggesting that everything has to be formatted into this particular way? Uh, and therefore, are you closing, and this is what I think some of the BBC programmes are, closing the door on kind of new and bold formats um, by having this kind of 
formulaic pattern of how you commission? It seems like more of a question for a network um, than a particular show. I mean, we have a sort of signature style that is the norm. We deviate from that. Um, we don't wildly deviate from that. Um, but it sounds like what you're describing is more of a BBC, NPR network issue. Well, I suppose in the way that you, you were talking to one of the, uh, the pitchers, who did a great job, by the way, everyone, um, in the way that I, where's the kind of upbeat ending? And I thought, well, you know, maybe the story doesn't have an upbeat ending, you know. Uh, and is there not the room to be able to say, I want to do this very differently. This is a brand new style of program. Actually, I want to try this with a completely new sound design or this is not a character-led piece, it's a data-led piece or, you know, Mm-hmm. It, do you think there's sort of room for more flexibility? Yes, I, I think you're, you're right. Um, that I think sounding formulaic will be the death of any show, and you have to evolve and you have to uh, try new things. It's a hard road to go as a freelancer. Um, it's much easier, like everything, to, to do in house. I would say if you're going to attempt to convince a show that a sound that's outside of our regular sound. Uh, is a good idea for us. It almost needs to be completed, and you need to play it for us. Um, and then we can say, that's such a good piece that even though it breaks our formula and breaks our brand, we're totally willing to play it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is unfortunate that it puts the burden on on the freelancer. Um, and just to be clear, we don't need an up, we don't need an upbeat ending, but it, uh, it needs to be a little more than just sad. It needs to have a little more meaning um, or a little more complexity than just being a bummer. Thanks. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd also say that the having you recognize that that puts a certain kind of stress on us and coming up with um, uh, solutions for that particular problem um, would be a good way to approach us. Yeah. <laughs> and for us, the formula would be the... I mean, there's always this rut that you can fall into with victim and villain. Mm-hmm. And, and that gets really boring and that gets repetitive and everything starts to sound alike. So if you have a new way of, of approaching that story, you know, within these certain parameters that, that we do need to have, um, you know, I'm always, I'm always willing to listen to that. Like, you know, all victims don't have to be pure victims. I mean, they're, they're flawed, flawed victims I welcome, you know. <laughs> I mean, people who maybe brought this problem on themselves to some extent with, because of their character flaws, you know. Um, and, and, and often, you know, the, the, the villain uh, has, a, uh, has a pretty good rationale for why they act the way they do. And I want people to sort of think and weigh that too. Um, you know. Thank you. So. I think I just want to add that I think you're all very privileged to be able to have, and in a really fantastic way, to be able to have a group of people discussing each program with such depth and such time. It's really valuable, and it doesn't happen everywhere else. And I think it does show and is demonstrated by the great quality of programming that you produce. And we want to wrap up now and just say thank you so much, first of all, to our amazing pitchers, to Colleen and Adrian, to our wonderful judges, Deb George, New York, Anna Sussman, 
And thank you so much again to AIR for hosting this panel. And we hope you'll join us again tomorrow, 2 p.m. New pitchers, new panelists. Come back and see if we do bubbles again. I don't know. So thank you guys so much for coming today.